This is a small school podcast with a difference. We aim to showcase our school's future-oriented pillars of learning alongside the schools, movements, and student leaders that inspire and invigorate our practice as educators. Our goal, acting as agents of change in an educational world that must adapt to be ready for a fast-moving now and a fast-moving future. Each episode, we'll link up in thought leadership with excellent practitioners across all types of international schools around the world, learning from peers, sharing our best practices, and claiming our place in the wider world of educational innovation and whole child-centered learning. I'm Rachel Hovington, Head of School at Benjamin Franklin International School in Barcelona, and I am joined today by Martin Picard, a BFIS parent. Martin is a graduate of computer science and math from MIT and Harvard, and he is a veteran technical software innovator, company founder, and CEO. In his own words, he's had an exciting, rewarding, and fortuitous ride along the path of distributed computing and tech innovation in Silicon Valley. Martin now owns Can Picard, a small family vineyard, a farm just a 17-minute drive from Barcelona. He's founded and is CEO of the Alea Green Tech Charitable Foundation, or AGT. It's a green tech R&D center, product showcase, and activities community center. There are fruit trees, arable land, grazing land for farm animals, sheep, chickens, honeybees, and resources for green tech research and development. Their mission is to help everyone from young families and school children to PhD students enjoy and learn about nature, sustainable agriculture, and investigate ideas about how technology can help us conserve resources and combat climate change. By fostering innovation, helping sustainable practices and supporting products get traction, he hopes to make a difference. The work he does and the stories he tells fit perfectly with our vision for learning's stated goal of nurturing our students to be collaborative individuals connected to the world around them who are empowered to design innovative solutions to complex problems to create a better world. Martin, welcome to the BFIS podcast. This is probably the most urban environment I've ever worked in, and yet it's nature that makes my heart sing. So bringing that to our students is super important to me in the context of problem solving. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Alea Green Tech? Well, okay. Thank you for inviting me, first of all. Um, so, yeah, I do have two students at, at, uh, at BFIS. Uh, one is uh, seven years old and one is 11. And so I, I'm, I'm seeing the world through their eyes. And uh, I, I also try to stay a kid myself. And uh, as a kid, uh, the, the thing I found was uh, the most fun was to have an idea and then, then see this idea take off, explode, make cool colors, whatever. So it was a, sort of a project-based view of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I became, later in life, I became a, t- a typical Silicon Valley engineer, a typical Valley, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Uh, which is, uh, to, to describe what a Silicon Valley entrepreneur is, and, and as you know, Silicon Valley is like, it's called Silicon Valley because it's a part of California where, which was the, the cradle of civilization as a, when it comes to technology, um, uh, starting from hardware and then quickly migrating to software and now even artificial intelligence. So it really is the place where innovation um, comes from, let's say, mm-hmm. um, apart from all the more important things like you know, the wheel and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, um, you have a view that technology is this cool, uh, fun thing that's going to benefit the world. And that's always been the case in Silicon Valley. They've always thought technology is um, 
uh, something that is, that is is there to help. Problem is, if you look backwards, uh, technology hasn't really benefited the world because if you start from the age of industrialization, you know, the motor car and the invention of the everything after the steam engine hasn't really been beneficial to to mankind. If you look at the effects on on, on planet Earth hmm. uh, and the sustainability. Obviously, it's been fantastic for the quality of life, but this quality of life that we've all achieved has been at a great price to the earth. And the sad thing for us parents is that it's our kids and grandkids that are going to pay what we and our ancestors have, have created. So as a, as a Silicon Valley engineer, uh, now that I am uh, retired, because um, having uh, been involved in a company that went public and a, and a couple of startups that, that were acquired, uh, I got to the stage of life where um, especially living in Spain, which it does not incentivize people to, uh, to you know, create businesses and, and, and be very capitalistic. It's, a, it's a, sort of a, an environment which tries to uh, equalize, and so there's no real point moving to Spain and trying to create a, a, an empire for self-profit. It's not the right place to do it. So if you come to Spain, you come for quality of life reasons, because you have a family here, in my case, because I met a woman from here. But, but uh, uh, also, it's a really great time to... to Think about giving back. So that's what happened with me. I, I, I come here and I'm giving back mode and, and seeing I have kids, well, why not give back through the kids? And so it became very clear to me that there's only so much I can do at the stage of life I'm at, but my kids and maybe even their kids can do a hell of a lot more. So why not tool up the kids to be able to go forth as my ambassadors but, and ambassadors to everybody else to solve the problems that we have created for them and that they will need to uh, confront. Uh, as they mature and, and they go forth as adults. Uh, and when they have kids, they're going to be very worried about the state of, of living on this planet mm -hmm. and the sustainability. And so uh, what needs to be done to help kids um, confront this future? Well, we need to give them the tools, the knowledge and the, and the attitude to look at problems as, as opportunities for solutions. And a solution is really a project, So it's a, in my opinion. So, so Everything is, um, comes from the opportunity to, to uh, identify a problem and therefore work on a solution. And so a lot of kids ask me, oh, you, so you've, been, you've created companies before, so how can I be an entrepreneur? How can I create my own company? I said, well, if you want to create your own company, all you need to do is do something you love. Just do it. <laughs> and then as you're doing it, ask yourself, is there something about this that doesn't quite work, right? Is there something about this that's giving me a bit of a headache? And so maybe later you can focus on making it just a little bit better. And sometimes you find some really cool solutions to, to uh, problems you find and the things you love to do. So basically it's just do what you love. Mm -hmm. So therefore, what we need to try to do is to get kids to love nature and to love gardening and to love just being out, out there. Uh, because by being out there, they will identify things that are opportunities for them to solve problems, and these are the problems that we need to solve. So my philosophy is, can I influence as, uh, you know, 10,000 kids to love nature, but also to have the tools to implement micro solutions to micro problems, or maybe even bigger problems. And once they are tooled up and they have this knowledge and they have this love for the environment and for, and for uh, um, you know, solving problems, mm -hmm. then they'll be in a position to go forth. And, and, and do stuff that in my lifetimes I, I won't be able to do. So that's what it is. I have a question for you, which is not on the script, and maybe we can cut it out, but where does your interest in, 
in sustainability originate or come from? Was it because you've come from Silicon Valley and, you know, there's an ecosystem there of talking about um, maybe maybe some performative work, mm -hmm. right, of, of, of trying to be planet friendly. But as we know, as you've said, technology on the whole um, uses materials that are uh, putting certain parts of the planet in danger. So, so what's the kind of relationship you have with uh, with sustainability, and where does it where, where where was that seeded in you? I've always worked uh, on on things that have to do with checking the stat the state of something, and then based on some parameters that you've set up, making a decision and then acting on it. And this has been my entire career. So monitoring and automation have been something I've always been interested in. And um, so I, uh, I started uh, with uh, the predecessor to the internet, mm -hmm. uh, quite, a, quite a ways, I mean, this was 1986. So it was way before the internet, but we were already trying to, uh, we already identified that, hey, there's this, there's this information and it's stuck on these computers. Like, like, like if, you wanna make, if you make a booking in Chicago for, for a flight, mm -hmm. you need to call your agent in Chicago to change your flight. You know, and you queue up at the travel agency here in Barcelona, and if you want to change your mind, you go queue up at the travel agency again and try to get them on the phone. Mm -hmm. And this all changed when all of a sudden computers could share information. And I was lucky enough to be involved uh, in the very first method for allowing uh, information to flow from one computer to the other, mm -hmm. which is called distributed database. Uh, and, um, and so from there, it was all about look at something, uh, try, to, try to parameterize it, you know, try to break it down into its basic components that you can actually analyze and then try to see if one of these uh, parameters is showing you that there's a problem that's going to happen and try to act before it becomes a real problem. So preventative actions. Mm -hmm. And I've done this in several industries and, and I've been lucky enough to where, I don't know why, but um, sometimes uh, things start to uh, either bother me or, or I find out about them just a couple of years maybe uh, ahead of other people and so I start working on it so for example five years ago I started working on water hmm. that was five years ago mm -hmm. and um, and with uh, the flow of information um, I started working on it quite a, quite early and so um, when it came time to to sell the, the company that I was working on which was also information based here in Barcelona I automatically had already other things that were very similar in nature in the fact in, in, the, in the sense that there was Something that needed to be measured, that um, that you needed to know if if the status was good or the status was, you know, kind of like red alert or or was it just a kind of warning that the data was telling you, mm. and then what were you going to do about it? And this came because uh, in order to find a, a place to live near an international school, which at the time uh, was on the coast in the Maresme, uh, I uh, my my wife uh, Marga and I. Found, uh, we were looking for a little apartment or uh, something that had some a garden near it near the school, and uh, and from an agent an agent showed us this uh, this fancy house which was way beyond our budget. But uh, and I said, well, there's no way we're going to buy this place. But what about that tiny place there that's broken down? And he said, oh well, that actually that broken down house you can get for really cheap, and it has like, some land next to it. I said, okay, let's go for that one. So it was just by luck that we 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 bought. Uh, the land that we saw from the from this terrace balcony of this fancy house, <laughs> and, and, and when we moved into that house, which you know we lived in it a year just to get the feeling for it without without doing any kind of renovation, and um, water of course was the number one thing. If you have a garden, 
you know, what, if you want to have anything grow at all, you can either wait for the 35 days of rain that we have here in Spain, mm -hmm. in which case, and, and, and as you know, in, in those, those 35 days, and I'm just guessing at the actual number, but you get pretty much the same amount of water that Belgium gets, you know, <laughs> except that they get it every four days, you know, and we get it all in those 35, so you, the mm -hmm. quantity of water is tremendous. And what does this water want to do? It wants to go to the ocean. So you just have this rushing water to the sea, uh, which takes half of your topsoil with it. Mm. Uh, so if you have a garden, you're dealing with you know, excessive water some, sometimes, and then no water the rest of the time. So water is immediately your problem. So mm. since I immediately was given a problem, I immediately thought, cool, I can now <laughs> solve it. Yeah. And so I've been working on, on uh, monitoring water and finding ways for other people to monitor water. And it's very, it's very fascinating. It's really cool because it's to do with electronics. So, for example, I have a product. My old product was called Vreezy, Vacation Rentals Made Easy. And it was a, an automatic calendar system that calculated the prices for agencies that have lots and lots of apartments for rent. Mm -hmm. And it did lots of fancy things like automatically list your sites on all these websites and all this stuff. Very techy software. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was called Vreezy. And so then I said, okay, well, now I can make... Wheezy, which is water made easy, not vacation rentals made easy, but water made easy. And so I'm working on Wheezy, which is like, <laughs> how can I make it really easy for people to manage water? Mm. So to manage water, you need to know how much water you're using, you know, how much water you're receiving, mm. and how much water you have in store, and then how much water your plants actually need. Because mm. if we can change the way we water plants from time-based, like everybody has a little timer on their terrace, mm -hmm. which at 6 p.m. Uh, waters, you know, yeah. the, the most intelligent ones have a sensor that says, okay, if it's raining, don't water. That's already good. But it's not as good as something that knows uh, whether or not the plant needs water. Mm. And if it does need water, what percentage of the maximum water that you could give it, you know, right. should I give it? Right. And so these, this watering algorithm is an example of, a, of, a, of something that I give to my students when they come visiting. And... Uh, and we'll talk about it maybe later, but I've set up like shacks and, and bungalows and tents in the woods. And so I have students from all over the world come and, uh, and I give them either, I either say, well, come with your PhD project and I'll help you work on it. Or, or if you don't have a project, I'll give you one. I've had uh, uh, students from all around the world um, come and one of the favorite projects is can we find a new way of watering? Mm -hmm. And so... And it's very simple. You have a microcontroller, a little computer that anyone can program, and it can, the programming can be with block programming such as Scratch, mm -hmm. and it can be with uh, uh, you know, an a object-oriented language uh, such as JavaScript. Um, so depending on the age, any kid can do this. And so I say, okay, here's a, a sunflower seed. It can grow six meters high if it's really, really happy. If it's not that happy, it'll only grow one meter high. So let's see. How you can, how, how, and it's going to happen in three months or four months, so it's, it's quite fast. And, and so the, the, the student can come up with an algorithm for watering, and it can be very sophisticated, like a, a proxy index of all sorts of ama amazing parameters, or it can be very, very simple, like, like I have these two little uh, metal uh, uh, sticks in the ground, and if there's any kind of uh, transmission of uh, current from one side to the other, then there must be some moisture in the water. And if there's no conductivity, mm -hmm. that means there's no moisture. So it's yes, no, mm -hmm. but it's uh, anyone can do it. Um, and so from there, you can really come up with some amazing PhD student could could solve the watering problem, and we could all instead of uh, watering all of our plants at 6 p.m., it could be just very very gentle, exactly based on what the plant needs. Yeah. Uh, 
What a great system, given the water um, issues that we had, we've had, we have in this region, right? We have had uh, extreme water problems. The last summer, there was no public yeah. water. There were no showers at the beaches here in Barcelona. Um, this is really, really current. So I get the question I asked you about where the sustainability uh, desire to work in this field comes from. I don't know if it was already instilled in you or if it was something that you were just ahead of us because you're voraciously reading and researching. You knew five years ago that this was going to become one of the world's um, yeah. biggest issues, but it seems like you're driven by... Well, I, 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 I arrived in Barcelona on a little sailboat, yeah. uh, which I sailed from Australia. Uh -huh. When I left Silicon Valley... Um, the company I was working for had done very, very well, and, and they said, here's a bonus, buy yourself a house. And I said, well, I don't want to buy a house because I've seen all these, and I'm from Rome, so I've seen all these uh, sad-looking Italian immigrants, and they're all talking about the old country. So I don't want to buy a house and be in America dreaming about Italy. I'll just buy a boat, and then when it's time, I'll just sail back to Italy. <laughs> so I tried to sail back to Italy, and I actually did sail back to Italy. And then the gas station that I was supposed to fuel up after five or six years of navigation and all these adventures and I finally got to Italy. The, the gas station hadn't been dredged so the boat actually fell on its side because it didn't fit and I got really frustrated at, at Rome and I said, oh, you know, if I can't even uh, take gas and it's November and it's cold and, and I'm here I am uh, half sinking in the, in the, in the Tiber River, uh, I'm just going to go somewhere else. So I just uh, headed west. I just sailed west. I sailed west and I could choose, as you sail closer and closer, to the other side of the Mediterranean, you have Marseille on the right, and you have Barcelona on the left. And uh, I happened to speak French, and I spoke no Spanish. So I said, well, the, you should always pick the more challenging of two options, so, so I'll go to Barcelona, because I already know about France. So I ended up in Barcelona. And, but, the, but the reason I brought this up is you asked about the water sensitivity. And mm. Well, uh, when you're sailing around the world, uh, and the first time I did it was from California to Australia, I think I had uh, 400 liters and I was at sea for over 30 days by myself. Uh, well, actually, the, the 30 days I, I was with a companion. Um, but the two of us had 400 liters of water. And so we actually took showers with an emulsifier. You know, the, mm -hmm. you, you, you spray the misty into the air and then you sort of like <laughs> wipe yourself down with the moist air because uh, I couldn't afford taking a, a, a shower that would use a liter of water. And so I was very sensitive to water. Um, and so that's, that, that, that carried on. We are increasingly putting design thinking into our curriculum. So it's not just in a subject where some kids can take it. It's now all kids can take it. That it starts to become infused in interdisciplinary projects between science and design, between math and design, between individuals and societies of history and geography, um, economics and design. Um, and that's, that's the NYP. That's the curriculum we're moving towards. So this sort of failing forward and prototyping our ideas, this is what you're, you're talking about. One of the things I haven't wanted to do is have our kids parachute in somewhere, learn something for a few hours and then come out and not be able to apply um, and, and move forward with it. So what you're talking about, PhD students that have a lot of time to prototype their ideas, to fail forward, to go back to the drawing board, to develop ideas. How do you think we can create that in a school environment when we're so constrained by all of these boxes and mm -hmm. bells and, and so forth? Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I have some strong thoughts about that based on trial and error. When students come to me, they come for a couple of months. And they come and then they leave. So if they, if they leave and they take their knowledge with them, those couple of months that they've been productive and learning really was great for them. 
but not great for the continuity of the project. Um, and maybe it doesn't even benefit the, uh, the, 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 the local community or even the world because it's just completely uh, dependent on how they go forward and you know, what, what they do afterwards. So instead what I do is I, is I uh, have students work on a project and document their work continuously. And when they leave, they leave all of their body of research, all of their, uh, uh, their, their future to-do steps and notes for the, for the next person. And this can be tuned for a school because whereas in my environment uh, a student is simply leaving the work and, uh, for the next one, which could be someone of their own level or higher level, at, at the school level you could have it across different skill sets and different ages. Because if you break down a project into steps, some of these steps can be done by a certain age group and certain, these, and, and certain other steps can be done by a different age group. But there could be an interconnection between the projects. And so the, the seven-year-old could, could um, work on, for example, coring. They could go and take samples of the, of, of, of the, the soil using a, a tool. Uh, then they could put it in a glass of water and, add, uh, and leave it for several days and, and shake it up and leave it for a few days and see uh, how much uh, silt and how much sand and, and how much uh, clay is in the glass. And then they could leave instructions uh, uh, how, how to do this, which could be, or the next steps that they see in the process, uh, for example, for to, to extract the, the clay. They could do a little bit of research. Oh, to, to extract the clay, we, you know, we just need to take the top bit or the, the bottom bit, you know, whatever. And they could leave the, 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 uh, the body of work they've done, which is the actual coring. Where is the good soil? Where is the, coil with the, the soil where there's lots of uh, clay? And they leave that for the next age group, which could be maybe the 10-year-olds, which are a little bit stronger, and they're actually going to extract the clay. So they're, they're benefiting from the work done by the 7-year-olds, and now they're going to do the, a little bit of the muscle work of extracting the clay. But extracting the clay also requires some science. So they're going to do the research, and, and then they're going to leave the to-do list for the next step, which could be researching on how to build a wattle and daub house, which is a, you know, a twigs and, and, and mud house, which we at our, at our farm we actually have people living in uh, very happily because uh, it's such a, uh, how do you say, a, a efficient, efficient uh, abode because it's several degrees cooler in the summer yeah. and several degrees warmer in the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's made out of twigs and mud. What more could you ask? <laughs> and we've had, a, I mean, it was built by, by ten or fifteen uh, kids of all ages, and down to four years old, they were just all throwing mud at twigs, and it worked out great. <laughs> um, so as, that was just an example of how you take a project and you break it down, and with the guidance of the of the, of the BFI teachers, they're so engaged and and they're you know several steps ahead. Uh, it can be very easy to create projects that span time, but also span uh, span skill sets. And then, you know, you just need, um, sometimes you can also break it down to where things can be done in a classroom and then deployed in the real world. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we're, we're building a, a water wheel, which is going to be four meters high and make electricity. But this water wheel um, has some unknowns, which even the best researchers have trouble figuring out, which is like, what is the most efficient angle of the buckets that are going to, you know, the water comes shooting down and it gets, it gets stuck in the water wheel and the, and the weight of the water makes the water turn. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one way of doing it. It's called a Pelton wheel. And another one could be an impact where the, the force of the rushing water hits the wheel and makes it turn. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the two are, you know, interrelated, but there's all the science, like Bernoulli's equations and lots of stuff if you really wanted to figure it all out. 
But instead, you could do it by trial and error, which engineers like a lot. And trial and error, what better way of doing it but to 3D print a tiny model mm -hmm. of the wheel. And so that, you don't do that on a farm, you do that in a classroom. So uh, as, it, as an example, uh, a project like that is born in, a, in the classroom and then gets deployed in the field. Uh, and it's a great thing. And it can be over any age because everybody can do a little bit piece of 3D design and 3D printing with all sorts of, you can go from really, really easy 3D programs to much more sophisticated ones. And then the, the, the printing everyone enjoys. Uh, and then to see it working in the classroom, which of course you can do, do with a small container full of water. Uh, but then, the, then it's very easy to put an ammeter in, uh, uh, into, uh, or a voltmeter and see how much voltage you're producing. And then uh, to turn that into the real thing, well, it's, a scale, it's just scaling. And so the electronics club could figure out, okay, if I've created X amount of power here, if I scale it up by 100 times, uh, will the power I've created scale up 100 times? Or is there some formula I need to know? where it's, you know, so that's very interesting and that can be quite technical or it can be simply hands-on. It can, all of these projects are really available and, and easy. And sometimes I run out of ideas. Like I, I had these really brilliant BFIS students this summer. I had four of them. And what I did is I assigned them to, um, to uh, well, I had three Harvard students visiting. One was a mechanical engineering student, one was a computer science engineer, one was a bit of a versatile finance, but he was also doing lots of other things. And so I gave uh, each of these students their own assistant, which was a BFI student. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually it worked the other way sometimes because uh, <laughs> a couple of the BFI students had actually uh, more uh, applicable tech knowledge than the actual Harvard student because, because at Harvard you end up, uh, which is my alma mater, so I know, you end up doing all this uh, really boring theoretical research and it's actually more uh, Bachelor of Arts, you know, it's like, you study physics, but you don't really study engineering. And so someone that's been really hands-on and knows how to hack microcontrollers mm -hmm. is actually more ready to work on one of my projects than someone that happens to know all the formulas mm -hmm. for uh, Laplace's equations or Maxwell's equations. It's not going to get you too far if you just want to figure out if a wheel is making a lot of electricity. You know? <laughs> so I worked both ways. The, 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 the high school student actually was helping mm -hmm. the, the college student Mm. Uh, just as much. There's that element of creativity and, and a, um, a confidence to have an idea, even if it's a crazy idea that we want to instill in our kids. And, and I think um, sometimes we experience them as feeling like they need to know it, right? That, that it wouldn't be a problem and we wouldn't have them on it if we already knew how to solve it or they already knew how to solve it. So that them coming out and working on real world problems is is part of what we're trying to infuse mm -hmm. in what we're doing for, for all kids. When it comes to a whole class that are working on something, um, what, what have you experienced? Some of our classes have been out there uh, this year to, to, to meet you and see what's, what's going on from. So uh, Alea Green Tech is a foundation and so its role is to give back by tooling kids up for the future. Mm -hmm. And so when kids come, uh, it's also limited to the stuff I know about. There's a lot of stuff I don't know about. Um, like, for example, the, the, the creating these amazing uh, uh, photo, uh, photovoltaic panels. I only learned that from Tom Warburton, uh, uh, 
day before yesterday when he explained it to me. <laughs> and, but now it's like, whoa, we need to build that into the curriculum here, at, uh, you know, with the, the things that we offer. Mm. And, uh, and, and for, for, for our listeners, Tom Wolverton is uh, one of our new science teachers who's just joined us. Who in the past has been doing some, a brilliant project on, on creating solar energy, not from silicon-based uh, solar panels, but from uh, the difference in properties for different types of, uh, just to say, play it simply because I don't really understand. <laughs> uh, let's just say you have two different types of paints and you put them next to each other and, and, and there's some kind of... Uh, they react differently to the sunlight and you're going to get a little bit of a current effect or a voltaic effect between them, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. But it, it, the, the idea is amazing because you could take your car and paint it and you'd have a, a battery cell, you know? Uh, you know? So, yeah, that, yeah. so these kind of things you learn by doing. Um, actually, I should ask you to tell me the question again because I, I can't remember what you asked me. Um, uh, what have some of our kids been seeing? Uh, so you've uh, just, you've yeah. just shared with us what... what Tom came up to visit you uh, this week, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's so, one of our teachers, but, but yeah. one of our, uh, I, said, I think it was one of our 6th or 7th grade classes, or 8th grade classes were up there um, with you recently, with uh, Julia Halverton, who's also yes. one of our science teachers. Yes, yes. So, so I've had several uh, BFIS groups. Uh, so the, so the, the foundation uh, caters to school field trips, uh, and we divide it up into the first the morning session being several different stations. Uh, so we divide the, the kids up into different groups, depending on how many there are, and they, they, they go and see different things. And then I usually meet with the science teacher before and try to match it to the curriculum of the school or at least to what the science teacher feels is important. And because there's so much that could be shown, so I try to focus it on something that the kid's going to uh, recognize as something that, that, that they've just studied or that they know about, you know. Uh, so it's very fun. So, for example, there's a bunch of abandoned wells. Uh, so we're and uh, and we take kids to and, and, and the young students and show them a hundred year old well that is no longer active. There's no water in it. It's totally dry because it was built at a time when groundwater was really plentiful. When the there was so much green that it created its own ecosystem. There was more rain, and the earth itself stores water. So underneath the plants, there's this reservoir of water, which is not a pool of water, it's just in the ground. And, that, and just like if you had a, a wet tissue, the water actually wants to seep out. And, uh, and if you do it right, you will actually guide that water, or just by, just by luck, if you put the well in the right place, and it's only 10 meters deep, it will be full of water. Uh, and that is going away. The world is drying up, and those ground wells... Uh, which are called dug wells because someone actually dug them and they put beautiful little bricks and they look fantastic but these dug wells are dying and so we show kids this and it, it really emphasizes what's happening with the world because you have this sad looking uh, dry well mm-hmm. and no water mm-hmm. and they're looking around and they see arid landscape they say well of course this well is dry because there's no water to be seen so believe it or not when the Romans came 4,000 years ago and our uh, and, and conquered Hispanica, or whatever they used to call it, mm-hmm. and they took away all the oak trees to build their ships, mm-hmm. which they, they, by the way, the Romans built really crappy seagoing uh, uh, ships because they were used to coastal navigation, and when they tried to cross from Barcelona to Rome, that most of them uh, uh, sunk near Ibiza, and there's a friend of mine that knows where all the amphoras are. So another project <laughs> would be to go collect amphoras. Go diving. <laughs> but uh, all these poor oak trees are at the bottom of the sea because uh, they, were, they were pillaged for these ships that weren't well designed in the first place, but and, and it left deforestation. So the land that is part of um, LA Green Tech 
is this, uh, quite a steep incline and it's void of most trees and it's quite arid right next to a woods which, which uh, has regrown but it's mostly pine. The idea is to show the kids uh, the dry well and then uh, just nearby there is the same well that just by coincidence uh, still gets a little bit of groundwater. Um, and so I can show them the old uh, ancient well actually working. Hmm. And then I show them uh, a well that is not 20 meters deep, it's 300 meters deep. Hmm. It is Empire State Building deep. Hmm. Uh, or more, I don't actually know how, how, how tall the Empire State Building is. Uh, but, uh, but, um, uh, and that thing is full of water, and when I turn it on, water shoots up into the sky. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes it all real. Uh, yeah. for people. But then you also have to talk about, well, that water we're taking from the, from the water table, mm -hmm. it's irreplaceable, it's prehistoric water, or, or maybe it's water that's coming from a hundred kilometers away or from the mountains uh, in Andorra. We don't know, but it's just water that we really shouldn't be taking without replenishing. So how can we replenish the table? How can we take water when we need it and put it back? Mm -hmm. and so that, that leads to all sorts of neat experiments, uh, which have to do with, you know, porosity of soil and uh, a distributed water collection, you know, when you have rain, uh, don't let the rain wash off to the sea, but, but have it stay on your land, greenifying your land, and then passing the runoff to the next land down below. Um, and so all these kind of things. And so the kids see wells, they see also erosion, because when these uh, significant water events happen, the water rushes to the sea, taking, the, taking a lot of the topsoil with it, which is a really disaster because, as you know, the, the life is in the last 20, 30 centimeters of your land. The life, all the worms and, you know, mm. and all the, the biogenome uh, uh, that you really want is there. And if the, if the rain event takes it down, you've lost your life. Uh, so what do you do? Well, there's these really easy techniques that, that are really ancient. When you see a crevice, you can fill it up with twigs uh, and, and a few other things, and, and before you know it, the next, uh, when, the next time sand rushes by, it's going to be trapped by the twigs and it's going to create like a beaver dam. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and sooner or later, you're going to have you know, that, that water is not going to rush that way okay. anymore. And then you have to give the water, you have to think and say, okay, but where is the water going to go? Like, it's just not going to go this way, but it's going to dig away that way. And it might dig under my house. It's gonna be, <laughs> it might be worse. So you have to say, okay, uh, let's guide the water. And so, before you know it, just by fixing erosion in one place, it forces you to actually find a bigger solution for the utilization of the rainwater. Mm -hmm. That's an, one thing we do. And then um, we, uh, we also show all the smart sensors, how you can collect information from parameters, and very easily lead it to very simple Arduino-like microcontrollers that, that can give you data. You can store the data. When people ask me for how, how is water on my land, I can show them uh, three years of data about how water is on my land. And I can, I can look at it and look at trends instantaneously. I can see whether or not, what effect climate change is having on my land. Yeah. And, and, and kids could do this in a simulated way in the classroom using the same tools. Uh, so we show them that. Uh, and, but we also show them fun things like, like uh, the, uh, uh, where we have a trek to the beehives which uh, we stayed kind of far away, but it's really interesting to see that we've built a fence around the, the beehives, which is ridiculous, like two meters high. And, and, and so why did you build a fence around the beehive? Well, the, the town council says it's a law. I say, well, what's the thinking behind the town council? It's like, well, they say that the bees are going to arrive at the fence and then they're going to have to fly up two meters. 
and that's going to protect humans from getting stung. So, okay, <laughs> sometimes you just have to understand that bureaucracy <laughs> is a part of the world. We know quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also some stuff that to learn them, you know, uh, and then we show them uh, uh, sheep shearing uh, and, uh, and, uh, and robotics. We have a working uh, gardening robot, which is very interesting. It mm. mounts different tools. There's lots of projects in the future for uh, smart BFIs kids building better tools that the robot picks up with two little magnets. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the robot has available water, air, and electricity. So you can build a vacuum cleaner to suck up seeds and, and shoot them out, or you can build a terminator for, for weeds, which is a spinning blade. Mm -hmm. all, these little, all these things are classroom projects which then can get deployed. Yeah. Uh, and you've already so, met and interacted with uh, the robotics uh, lead here. Yeah. Um, so what kind of ideas were coming out of, of that discussion? I, I know that you've mentioned a couple there, but I, I know there were, there were more ideas yeah. being seeded. Well, I have a field that's quite large. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like a, as big as a football field, like a, like a big football field. And um, I'm working some, with some people from industry to set up, uh, maybe divide it up into seven uh, strips and have uh, autonomous robots, which are, um, as you know, robots that are independent for energy and um, have a task to do, and they're very smart about how they can do that task. They can take information from the soil, they can receive information from the satellites, uh, and, uh, and so uh, the, the, the kids, when they, when, when they see these, uh, the, uh, this area, um, it's available to them, and uh, uh, Mr. Farmer, uh, uh, at, who leads the robotics effort, uh, right now they're very focused on uh, the competition that they're they're going to have, uh, and uh, and I'm very happy that they're they're doing that because I always used to watch the uh, robot wars on TV where the, <laughs> you build these cool robots that, that that can take each other out like boxers, uh, but that technology is completely applicable later to retooling it and doing something extremely useful. So uh, we've decided that once the competition is behind them, uh, they can take that robot and, and rework it to do some really interesting task. Hmm. And I have a friend here who has a lot of experience with um, robotics. He's, he's, he's been the CTO, uh, chief technical officer of a couple of robotics companies. He's just started a new one. And he's, I've promised him he's uh, one strip that he really wants. <laughs> Uh, where you can test his robots out, and uh, and we've I've suggested that we create a uh, BFIS Industry Day, where I bring three or four people uh, from the robotics industry to talk to the kids about what are the problems that robots are solving. Not so much the technical aspects, because that changes, but the problems ahead of us are going to be the problems ahead of us quite a while. So uh, to to have uh, the students think in terms of uh, what are the problems that need to be solved, and therefore what are the solutions that they can let fester in their mind over the next few years and then to come and bring their robot and give it a go in a real environment. It's so great to talk to a parent who's seeing all the positives in AI because I often get emails that say what are you going to do about this horrible thing that's that's uh, going to affect our kids or our kids are too connected to technology and of course there's a balance there um, but th the idea that our kids are using AI, using robotics, what is just for our listeners to understand when that robot is being retooled and it is learning from satellites about about its location and adapting to, to, to the, the conditions, can can you just give give folks a little idea about what that world is that our students are connecting with? Basically, um, 
a machine works by receiving information, processing that information and making a decision, which could be moving forward, moving backwards, deploying a tool. And uh, AI is very similar. AI is checking a database of information, coming with a guess for what to do next, and then checking whether that guess was a good one or a bad one, and then going back and modifying its algorithm to get a better result the next time. Everything is about information and access to, to information. And the next thing is it's about intent. You, information in itself is good. Algorithms can be evil or, or beneficial. <laughs> so uh, we unfortunately, for every, uh, every 1,000 people doing something beneficial, there could be X number of people trying to do something bad. And that's just how the world is. So um, moving forward is about creating all this fantastic stuff that we want to happen and not stopping it from happening. Because that would be like saying we're not going to allow the wheel to exist because some thieves might rob a bank and run away with a car that has wheels. So we want to have only square wheels so that the bad guys can't get away. You know? <laughs> but, you know, well, you know, every technology, no matter what you do, no matter even if you stop it, some other technology is still always going to be used for evil. So what happens is, what, we, what do we need to do? We need to train our kids to become guardians of the right way forward. So we want the smartest person in the room to be a good person, mm -hmm. not to be a bad person. If the kid gets away with something bad too often, they begin to think that the right way forward is not the, is not the good way forward. So I think being strict uh, at the beginning is really important. Uh, but the strictness doesn't come from limiting uh, technology. It comes from the reward process for, you know, for uh, making it much more cost uh, efficient for people to do good stuff than to do bad stuff. Mm -hmm. I always ask myself, why would someone uh, go around breaking into houses these days that there's no, there's nothing to rob in a house? I've been broken into three times and the most I ever got away with was an, an old iPad that was at least eight years old. I, could, I got nothing out of all their effort uh, I have videos of them sneaking underneath the, the beams of the, of the, you know, the sensors and all this effort they went to, got nothing out of it. And they must know, but they keep coming back. I mean, that person is so talented because they're so good at what they do. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's a, some other profession, for example, uh, cleaning windows at the top of skyscrapers, <laughs> where would they be paid a hell of a lot more than they got from my iPad. Mm. So I think actually it's part of the education. The, um, the solution in the long term is not uh, stopping technology, it's improving our educational process to where people don't want to be evil. Now, obviously, you'll never solve it, and it's very idealistic for me to say, but it is part of the solution. And the other thing is to teach the good guys, and, 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 and when I say guys, it's, it's a, a guy. Gender inclusive, yes. It's a yes. gender neutral <laughs> statement. I hope, I hope it's clear these days that guys is, has become an international, has become meaning both men and women because. Uh, it's just easier to say guy, guys and guys and gals. But yeah, so, so the, the, good, the good guys have to be the best people in the room and they have to have the tools available to keep us safe. And then there's tons of things they can do. Technology can, can keep us safe. Uh, so I'll give you an example from my own history. When I got to Harvard, uh, it, was in, it was 1982, and I saw all these, a whole room of computers. I'd never seen that before in my life because this was 1982. So like, you know, the, the IBM PC was, was invented in like 1975 or something. 
And so colleges didn't have PCs. But they did have terminals where you had this huge mainframe and they went around serving all the terminals. So the terminal got half a second of time. So you type a character, it goes to the server. The server says, oh, that's an A. I'll print an A on your screen. That's how it works. And so, so you know, uh, time sharing on a computer. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, this is really, really cool. And I see people using passwords to get into these computers. I said, oh, okay, that's really cool. So I wrote a little program to look like a login screen. And I put it on the, multi on the big server, and it displayed it on everyone's terminal. So within a few hours, I had everyone's password. Uh, uh, so, uh, so I would say, I think I was the original hacker. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm willing to listen to someone else that has a pre-1986 hacking uh, incident, and then we can compare. Uh, so, yeah, so then what did I do with this data? Well, you know, I was, I was 18. So uh, I wrote, uh, uh, they had internal email at the time, and so I wrote emails between two from this girl to this guy, from this guy to this girl. Uh, and I thought I was doing a prank, making them meet each other. And, and the prank worked because they got married. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so that's what I did with the technology. It wasn't particularly bad. Uh, but it could have been if you hadn't been educated in the yeah. right way. Yeah. A, a little bit later, uh, I, uh, I had a girlfriend that wasn't doing very well in, in her con uh, computer science introductory class. So I wrote a little uh, daemon, which is a program that runs by itself. It's not attached to anyone's computer. It just lives in the ether. And it went around looking for the solutions to the problems that she was working on. And then it would like take X percent that I could code of the solution. And so she could get these random words that could help her uh, with the thing. And there was this PhD student called Mike Yample, who became head of uh, Merrill Lynch uh, security. He was doing his PhD, and the Harry Lewis, the head of computer science at Harvard, said to him, I think we have someone sneaking around our network. Can you do something about it? He said, right, no problem. I'm going to write a computer program that's going to look uh, for, for demons that are accessing information in this area. Uh, and um, and now this is 1986. This is way before the word hacking had been invented. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but I think so. Uh, uh, and so, so what did I do? Well, I saw that there was this demon accessing my demon, so I wrote a demon to access it. To, I wrote a program <laughs> to check for people looking at my program. And what did he do? He wrote a program looking for programs that were checking for his program. <laughs> and we went to several depths, iterating, iterating, and in the end, well, he was a PhD student and I was a college student, so he won. He won. <laughs> so I think there was a time where I was brought into the office and they said, Martin, uh, you have violated uh, code, you are suspended from Harvard, don't say a word. Uh, okay, you're not suspended anymore. Do you want a summer job? <laughs> <laughs> this is why I love that you, our kids can be in touch with you, and I know we've got to be conscious of your time because you've got, you've got another meeting coming up. But just having you be part of the community, be engaged, be part of what we do here is so, so wonderful for the kids to have this real life, real world um, perspective, but also, you know, you're a part of internet and computing history in many ways, and I think that's that's so cool for our students to be able to access firsthand um, through their teachers, through, through being able to meet you as interns. Um, so I just really want to thank you for that engagement because that's that's part of the community engagement we want to model, and I think it's working really really well with projects such as yours. So thank that's you. Oh, good, great fun. Mike, can I ask you one more question? I'm a head of school. I'm 50. 
I've grown <laughs> up in a model. Um, I've never worked in industry. Uh, my uh, degree is originally in applied and environmental geology. I then sort of retooled, honestly, because I fell in love with somebody and ended up in the city and, and didn't know what to do for that year. <laughs> um, and ended up doing a PGC, loved working with young people. What's one piece of advice that you would give to me as a head of school? Well, I mean, focusing on the, on the school aspect, uh, I think, as you said before, it's, it's all about engagement of the kids. So kids just get bored so easily. And so it's finding ways for them to feel super engaged by what they do. And, and then you have had the time, you're a professional, and so you're in a really good situation to look into kid motivation. Because it's, as soon as you put a point system, if I, like today in the car, I was driving the kids to school, and I said, hey guys, we're gonna have a competition. And that woke them up much more than if I had said, guys, I wanna to talk to you or something, you know, all of a sudden. And so I think it's looking at education and looking for opportunities where you can bring ways to get the kids more engaged and make every subject to be this super cool thing they wanna do because some kid reason. You know, and that's a difficult thing. Is, you know, and, and then what are, what are the attention spans uh, and, and to not have subjects that are 45 minutes, half an hour. They should only be as long as the kids are interested. And so it's just like watering. If you water your plants for an hour a day, well, you could have been overwatering or underwatering. But if you water the plants as much as the plants want water, you're, and so maybe knowledge is something that is acquired when there's a a certain reception, receptiveness to them. And so I think there's a lot of challenges that you could uh, address, uh, which could be quite a groundbreaking, quite disruptive. I don't know. I'm just someone that is taught to look at stuff and say, hey, what about this, you know? And half of what I say is really dumb. The, the way I know if, my, if I'm onto a good idea is I have my wife, and she says, that's a really dumb idea, and then I know it's a good idea. Because <laughs> you don't want to work on something that everybody thinks is a good idea, because that, it's, what's the life? time of that. In, in six months, everyone's going to know it. Everyone's going to ha have thought of it too. You want to go for ideas where everyone thinks it's a bad idea, mm. because that is the idea that has wings. Uh, so, <laughs> Mark, uh, so. Thank, you. thank you for being with us today. I am just unashamedly idealistic, and I love, I've loved listening to you because this is, there's a piece of you that, that exudes that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I think it's all going to be very, a lot of fun going forward. We can, collectively bring the kids to where they're super engaged, uh, super motivated, but it's, and also from my perspective, super tooled up. What else, what, what can they not do? Simply, I am super excited about the future of learning at BFAS as our teams collaborate with Martin at LA Green Tech. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out Martin's website that we have posted underneath this episode. Join one of his events. His team organizes fun, educational, and delicious events and activities for the local community and visitors from around the world. Their events are a perfect combination of education and entertainment. They allow individuals to participate in a range of exciting activities, including introductory robotics demonstrations, gardening with their innovative gardening robot, meeting newborn lambs, and playing football on their grass field. They offer a range of culinary options, including the chance to roll your own pizza, or enjoy an authentic Argentine barbecue. Their mission is to get you out in nature, experiencing new things and inspiring you to join the fight to save our planet. Join us next time as we explore more future of learning topics that directly impact BFIS children and their families. <laughs>